Today I have with me Dr. Don Teeter and Martha Teeter. I have posted a couple other interviews with Don and Martha, so please go see those for some great information on the stigma of addiction and trauma and predisposition to pain and addiction. Today, I wanna to talk about alternative pain treatments. Some hospitals are having great success with non-opioid medication protocols, as well as non-medication treatments. There are different kinds of pain, of course, and opioids do have their place, but many times they are not the best option. By now, I think most of us know in general why opioids should not be our go-to, but let's go a bit deeper. Don, can you please start first by telling us why opioids are so problematic? So opioids are clearly addicting and we're seeing obviously many, many people get addicted to them. And, and this was really first pointed out by the CDC in about 2010, where they showed how our increased opioid prescribing from mid 1990s through about 2010, every year we prescribe more opioids and every year more people got addicted. And they really showed that the numbers we prescribe are directly related to the number of people getting addicted and the number of people that are dying from overdoses. And so that's when we began to realize that, that the pills we prescribe are really problematic. And, and there's a number of reasons why that is, but in reality, they, they have this really pretty dramatic effect on our brain. And, and they, studies have shown that if you take an opioid for a month, we can measure brain changes by MRI, which means billions of brain cells have changed. So they really change our brain. Um, they become habit forming, they become hard to stop. Uh, even for those people who don't get addicted, it's still the withdrawal symptoms are pretty miserable sometimes. So they're, they're, they're dangerous medications. CDC also showed that even a one day prescription for an opioid, and you have about a five to 6% chance of remaining on that opioid long-term compared to people that don't get any prescriptions for a pain problem. So, uh, you know, acute and chronic pain, they, they can be problematic and they are risky. It's a little scary when you think about all of us that have had maybe kids that have had wisdom teeth out and it's like, okay, here's your, here's uh -huh. your Vicodin or your Percocet. That's a little scary. Yeah. They, so, they've shown that in children also, actually they've done studies in children and young adults showing that if they get an opioid prescription for a dental problem, they have about a five to 6% chance, chance of having a diagnosis in their record or in the next year of some kind of opioid abuse problem. So yes, it is problematic for our children in particular. Yeah, it's a little scary. So what kind of pain and when is it appropriate to use an opioid? So I think uh, there's really three times it's, it's appropriate to use uh, opioids. One is really for severe trauma, people that have a severe life-threatening injury. Studies have shown that the sooner they get the opioid, the less likely they are to develop PTSD from that injury. So in particular, uh, you know, they, that's why they have morphine on the battlefield and someone has a severe uh, wartime injury, they just give them that shot right away and it reduces their chance of developing um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's because it calms them down immediately. It's not the pain relieving effect, it's the calming effects that opioids initially have. Um, so for trauma, they've also shown this in severe burn patients. The sooner they get the morphine, the better they do. But in burn patients, they showed that if they're on opioids for more than seven days, then their outcomes become worse. So initially it provides this calming, but over time, the longer you're on it, it actually kind of reverses that. You get more anxious, you develop depression. So the studies in burn patients have shown that those on longer than seven days have more depression, more chronic pain, uh, and, and they develop more of a lifetime problem. So the goal is to use it short term for severe trauma and try to get people off as soon as you can. 
The other time, clearly opioids are beneficial is end of life situations. So people in hospice care, they're dying. If they have a painful, if, you know, whatever's causing their death, if it's painful, they should get opioids. Um, it calms them down. Uh, it does treat their pain some, and we don't worry about addiction at that point, obviously. The third time we know opioids are, are effective is uh, for those people that become addicted to opioids, the use of buprenorphine and methadone, two opioids that have very special qualities compared to all other opioids, uh, helps them treat their addiction. It helps them be more successful in the recovery. Okay. So outside of those three cases, if somebody has acute pain, how can we treat effectively without opioids? So there's actually a lot of things we can be doing. So often I think our problem has been we just look at the opioids and we go to those. But in reality, if we're talking about outpatient pain treatment, if we're talking about pills, um, studies have shown that taking one over-the-counter ibuprofen at the same time as you take one extra strength Tylenol, take them together, it's 60% more effective in reducing pain than taking two Percocet pills. So this combination of a uh, ibuprofen or really any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug and acetaminophen or Tylenol, uh, that combination together is more effective than the opioids. It's more effective than morphine is. Um, so for pill form, that's what we do. We, we do this, this alternative of over-the-counter medications even, and, and they work very effectively. If they're in the hospital, there's injectable uh, forms of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, Ketorolac in particular. It's been shown to be more effective than, than opioids as well at reducing pain. So there's that. We can do use other medications. There's ketamine, which is an anesthesia agent. Use low dose. It's more effective than morphine uh, and is not addicting. So there's a lot of different things we can do medication-wise, but even behaviorally. We know that when people have acute pain, uh, we're measuring, when we measure the zero to 10 scale, we're measuring their sensory input uh, aspect of that pain, but there's also this emotional component. And the emotional component actually makes them hurt more if they're really freaking out about it or if they're anxious or depressed or whatever else. Uh, and then there's also this cognitive aspect. What they think about the pain also kind of affects how they feel the pain. So that's, we know that as the placebo effect or the nocebo effect is really the opposite of that. So there's these other behavioral aspects of it that oftentimes we ignore for acute pain, but can be really important in, in reducing their pain and helping them have better outcomes. So Martha, perhaps you could weigh in on this. If you've got somebody with acute pain, I, I'm not gonna have a therapist necessarily with me, right, at that moment. What kinds of things can we do to help that person push through that acute pain from a behavioral, emotional perspective? Well, I think um, doing anything that's calming, like even breathing or any kind of mindfulness thing, you know, just in the moment, probably the number one suggestion I would have is for them to just do some regular breathing and kind of it's it's a stabilizing kind of thing to do. Mm -hmm. If you know in advance they're going to have some pain, if they're going to have a procedure or a surgery or something's coming up that is planned, then you can certainly kind of strategize people who go through like joint replacement boot camp and things like that, a lot of what they do in preparation for a procedure is, here's how we're gonna manage your pain, here's what we'd like you to do. And they do a lot of preparation. But I think the mindfulness piece, the breathing, looking at your thoughts about pain, are you catastrophizing? And, you know, Don has had some procedures lately where it's like, okay, I got my virtual reality goggles, you know, that kind of thing even when you know you're going to have a surgery or procedure, you can kind of strategize and make a plan and it makes you feel a lot more in control. 
But I think um, when people are, are in acute pain, they do have an emotional reaction. And you can think of your own episodes with acute pain in your sure. life, whether you had a baby or a kidney stone or something, there's pain and your emotions are immediately involved. And so we really want people to be able to have a bit of detachment and just notice that I'm uncomfortable. You know, or when I've had pain, I'll think, oh my gosh. But then you say, okay, maybe this is like a one, you know, I could just settle yeah. a little bit. And so I think the emotional and the cognitive components are really uh, important. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to go back to the over-the-counter remedies. I can tell you from personal experience, well, watching my family members, um, that it works. I mean, you you think the ibuprofen and the Tylenol, it's like, yeah, right. But the I first used that, discovered with my daughter, actually, that tore her ACL. And that, as you can imagine, that's pretty painful. And when she went through her ACL surgery, I gave her her Percocet. She didn't like the way it made her feel. So she actually came to me and said, Mom, I'm not doing this anymore. Now, my original plan was to let her use this for 24 to 48 hours and get her through the hump. But she took one. That was it. She was done. And we managed the rest of it with ibuprofen and Tylenol. And then I think it was... Don worked and did some education at a facility where I was at. And that's where I really heard, okay, this, here's the statistics and this is how much better it is. So a year or so after that, my husband tore his Achilles, extremely painful. And after he had surgery for that, I thought, okay, you're going to be my guinea pig. We're not even doing the 24 hours of this opioid that the, your surgeon gave. We're going straight to this. And my sweet husband, okay, dear, whatever you say. And uh, that's what we did. And he bounced back. It was tremendous. In fact, his surgeon said he had never seen anyone bounce back so quickly. And, you know, he was already of an age. It's not my daughter, her ACL surgery. I mean, she was 16, right? And, and in fit shape, a volleyball player. So you would expect that she may bounce back pretty quickly. But um, at my husband's age, with his injury, it was fantastic. And you contrast that to somebody else that I knew who's about my age, but she was in her 40s, I think, at the time, who had an ACL surgery. She took the Percocet. She got a refill for the Percocet. Fortunately, did not become addicted, but her healing process was so long. And she herself then said, you know what? I think this might be because I just took Percocet. I had no incentive. I didn't feel like getting up and doing my rehab and healing. So it actually prolonged her recovery period, um, we think, because that is the, the choice that she made with, with her, her um, pain management. Yeah, and there's actually studies that support that. They show that the use of opioids after surgery results in more complications and a delayed recovery period, you know, pretty much no matter what the surgery was for. So surgeons are, are, are learning this now, and they are starting to change how they do that. Now, I will share my own experience, as Martha uh, had said in the previous uh, one we did here that, that I had had some procedures recently. Twelve years ago, I had a knee replacement, and um, the pain after that, I think, was the worst pain I'd ever felt. Yeah. And, you know, I suffered for a while and it, and I got IV opioids in the hospital. And as an outpatient, I got Oxycontin probably for up to a month or so. And the whole process was just very difficult. Well, bounce forward now 12 years and there actually was a defect with that replacement. So I had to have the old one taken yeah. out and 
put in. And that the studies have shown that usually hurts worse, but I told the surgeon I want to do it all without opioids. And we use the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory in the hospital along with Tylenol. And so in the hospital, I didn't get any and my recovery was much faster. I was mm -hmm. up and walking on this within about eight hours of the surgery. And within 16 hours, I was going home. Uh, last time I was in the hospital for three or four days, I, you know, I did the ibuprofen and Tylenol uh, as an outpatient at home and my recovery is much faster. I would say I experienced less than 50% of the pain I did before uh, by doing that. Uh, so it's doable, you know, doesn't matter what, but I also prepared ahead of time, as Martha said, you know, I knew I would have some anxiety because it was so bad before. So I got virtual reality glasses, goggles to take my mind off of it when the pain was really bad and played games. Um, you know, I prepared for it mentally. I practiced my mindfulness uh, work so that I could calm my body down, and reduce the adrenaline that's flowing, which makes your, your pain feel worse. So by doing these different things, it, the outcome was just completely different. It was a whole different experience. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's hard for people to believe that you can manage things with those over-the-counter meds, but it, it's real. It really does work. What about people that have chronic pain. I mean, they've got, you know, I probably back pain is probably one of the more common ones, but, but they have chronic pain. What do you suggest for them? So there's a lot of things we can do for chronic pain as well. But whereas we know acute pain is driven a lot by the tissue damage that occurs, we know also that our emotions and our thoughts have some role in that and they can kind of magnify the pain and, and make it hurt worse or they can turn it down. That's why soldiers in a battlefield can be shot, say in the shoulder, and they don't feel it for a couple hours because their brain can turn it off. Um, but in acute pain, that, that it, the tissue damage is usually doing a lot of the pain and the other stuff is part of it. Chronic pain is just the opposite. The tissue damage is a small proportion of the pain people are feeling and their emotions and their thoughts are really magnifying it. So that's why medications don't work very well with chronic pain. That's why we've seen people get on opioids and they go to higher and higher doses and their pain's no better than it was before they started after they've been on it for a while um, because we're not addressing this emotional and cognitive aspect. And, and so, you know, it, it happens. Pain, the longer it goes on, the more depressed you get about it and the more anxious you get about it and the more negative you become about it. So, and then that makes your pain worse and then you kind of get in this cycle. So really behavioral health, uh, interventions are a critical part of helping people deal with chronic pain, helping them improve their chronic pain and their life, actually. Okay. So, um, yeah, Martha, can you explain a little bit about how counseling and behavioral treatment play a large role in in helping people through that? And, and what do you do with people that are already on chronic opioid therapy? How do you get them off that? Well, I'll take the first part of the question. I'll let Don take the second part. Um, so the counseling can involve a lot of different things. And as we touched on in one of the prior um, deals that we did with you, you know, we talked about shame. So counseling can help people work through shame or guilt, family issues, um, maybe building coping skills that they haven't really developed before, working through trauma you know, rebuilding trust, just figuring out what their life is going to look like now, building more optimism, looking at, you know, how they can build a fuller life. The two main approaches that work with chronic pain are mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy. So with cognitive behavioral therapy, we're helping people look at their thoughts about their pain. Are they scared? Are they anxious? Are they angry? you know, what are the emotions and thoughts that go with their pain and how can they 
modify those so they're less fearful, less, you know, agitated and all those kinds of things. And then the other one is the mindfulness. And so that really works very well with people and they like it. So they do it. But that's things like breathing, movement, activity, um, moving your body more than you currently are, um, you know, being able to do visualization or, you know, any number of things, yoga, stretching, you know, loads of things fall under the mindfulness umbrella. And those are the two approaches that are the uh, best supported in the evidence. But then you have all the other issues with the person that can be, they can benefit from counseling. Yeah, I think it's a, people don't put enough emphasis on the mind. I think that we can really control and change a lot if we can change how we, you know, what our mind, I mean, it's just, it's very powerful. And I think people don't realize it unless they've known somebody who's done something with it or, or done it themselves. Pretty powerful. All right. You know, so I, the, I will talk briefly yeah, about people that are already on opioids. Yeah. And, you know, there are some people that take opioids and they do pretty well and they keep doing pretty well, but they really are the minority. Most people that end up getting on opioids kind of because of the way they work on our brain and their long-term effects, it, it ultimately makes their depression worse. It makes their anxiety worse and it makes their pain worse over time. Um, so for those people that have been on, you know, increasing doses and their pain is still there or it's worse than it was before, studies have actually shown that if we wean them off of their opioids, their pain will improve 20 to 30 percent. But that process of weaning their dose down makes their pain much worse. And so it's very hard to do. They see that as an indication that their pain problem is worse than it's ever been. Their back is worse than it's ever been. But in fact, it's really withdrawal symptoms from the opioids. So it's hard to do that. Uh, and we now know that, you know, a lot of people that are on long-term opioids just can't come off of them. And maybe they don't fit all the criteria for addiction, but they still can't stop them. Um, and we're kind of trying to figure out what to do with those folks. Um, one of the new terms being used is complex persistent opioid dependence. So they're not really calling it addiction, but it's a complex syndrome where they can't come off. And for those people now, the treatment is buprenorphine, which is what we use for treating people that are addicted. Buprenorphine though is also a great pain medication as well. And because some of one of its special properties is you don't develop tolerance to it. So oftentimes we can get them on, you know, a dose that they stay on and, and their pain is much better and their life is better. And it actually, instead of causing depression, buprenorphine treats depression. So it has these properties that make people do real well. So there's kind of this group of people that can't get off their opioids. And for them now we're switching them to buprenorphine for pain. Okay. And if it's used that way, does it require the, the X waiver, the license? No, you, you don't need the X waiver to use it for pain. And, and, you know, it comes in a patch form, a transdermal form, it used to be called Butrans was the name brand. Um, that really gives you much lower serum levels or plasma levels than the, the sublingual form is that we use for addiction. So many of these people that have been on high doses of opioids in particular, we need to switch them to the sublingual form that we use for addiction. But like you said, you don't need the X waiver for that. You just should put on the prescription somewhere that they're taking it for pain. And then, yeah. 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 If, if you have somebody that is being treated with opioids um, and they haven't had to increase their doses and it seems to be handling the pain for the most part, and maybe they're elderly, 
Um, so it's like, well, they've been on this for so long and they're not showing specific signs of dependence, let's say, but I mean, maybe some signs of depression or lethargy. So it's like, oh, let's maybe decrease this dose, but they're, they're a little bit um, uh, resistant to it, afraid probably. What would your thoughts be on that? What would your suggestion be as a, a route to maybe explore? Well, I think switching to buprenorphine might be an option. And if they're on a relatively low dose, say they're taking two or three Percocet a day, you could maybe switch to the patch and it would give you equivalent pain reduction with less of the side effects. So one of the things in particular, you mentioned the elderly, uh, these folks that are getting older that have been on these for years and they work okay, but maybe they're a little more confused. So they cause some cognitive impairment. Maybe they've fallen. Opioids in the elderly increase their risk of fall and fracture by a factor of four. So it does increase their risk, but changing to buprenorphine really takes all that risk away. So that'd be something I would talk to them about, uh, changing to buprenorphine, because I think it's pretty well, I mean, it's pretty well established. It's much safer for the elderly to do that. So I would consider that, uh, you know, I would talk to them about, about weaning off, say, wouldn't you like to get off this medicine? And, you know, you might think, often the thinking is the thing that gets them. Your thoughts might be a lot clearer. You'll be able to recall things faster. You know, I know as I age, that's one of the things I'm very sensitive about is when I don't remember things now because my memory's not as good. If I had, a, a, if I was taking a medicine that compounded that, I'd be very happy to come off of it, I think. So I do talk about that some with them about the memory issues. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a good point. I, I can imagine it must be kind of a scary thing to, if you're convinced that you need it for your pain and you certainly don't want to go through the pain right. and the withdrawal, forget the withdrawal piece. They probably don't even think they'll withdraw because they're not addicted. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that, that would be a scary thing, I think. Okay. All right. Thank you. That's some, some good suggestions. So folks, if you have not watched the other discussions with Don and Martha, please check them out. They are a wealth of information. Also check out their website, Teeter Health Solutions, to see what services they offer and how they can be of assistance to you and your organization. They have years of experience between them and they know what works. They're passionate about sharing, so you too may have success surrounding effective pain prescribing and addiction recovery. Thank you, Don and Martha, for sharing just a sliver of your expertise with us today. Thank you, Terry.